Hello, and welcome back to Crypto Sapiens. I am your host, Humpty Calderon. And today, we're talking to Dan Romero, co-founder at Farcaster. In our conversation, we will talk about the rise of decentralized social, different levels of decentralization, and why Farcaster has chosen a sufficiently decentralized approach. And if you don't know what that means, it's okay, we're going to get into it. We'll also be covering the different identity systems that are used in Farcaster, as well as content moderation and decentralized networks, as well as exploring the permissionless innovation ecosystem that has been built for developers there. And this is evident by the growing number of applications that are being built there. So as always, there's lots to unpack here. So let's get started. So first of all, thanks for having me. I grew up in Massachusetts, went to school on the East Coast, worked in Boston for a few years, and then moved to Silicon Valley in 2013 and was looking to work in tech, uh, something that I had kind of always wanted to do. And the first year I was working at a SaaS company and read the Bitcoin white paper and ultimately got really excited about Bitcoin and then the potential for cryptocurrencies as a new computing platform, right? 2013 is kind of like peak mobile era. Instagram had been acquired the year before. WhatsApp gets acquired the next year. And so it made the hop over to Coinbase in 2014, thinking that crypto was the next big wave in technology. And I think it was a little early on that. And um, arguably, it's still pretty early for crypto. But um, Coinbase ended up being the kind of like right place at the right time, at least within the crypto ecosystem, albeit the first two years were, were pretty slow. And I was there for a total of five years. And then in 2019, left, took some time off. And while I was off, reconnected with a, an ex-Coinbase colleague of mine, Varun Srinivasan, and we started working on some new you know, potential ideas for a new project. And the idea that we both got excited about was answering the question, how could you make RSS competitive with Twitter? And so the initial name of the project was RSS Plus, and that ultimately turned into Farcaster, which we've been working on for the last two years. That's a really interesting trajectory. Uh, you know, and I, and I had a question that I wanted to save for a little later, but I, I, it sounds like we're almost touching on it now. So I, I'm just going to start with that. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed personally is this introduction of decentralized social across a variety of different blockchains. You, you know, you have uh, Lens over at Polygon. You, uh, I've recently learned of Noster over at Lightning. We have Farcaster, which I believe is would be an Ethereum native application. Tell me a little bit about this idea of decentralized social as, you know, this killer app, if you will, um, on blockchains. Is that really like a, a, a monumental shift from the way that we think about blockchain? Yeah, so I, I think it's worth parsing apart. Why, why should we have a decentralized social network? Why is that important? And then the implementation. And so as it relates to the, you know, having a decentralized social network, uh, I think I start from the place of the two things that we're really trying to optimize for are one, anyone who has an audience on Forecaster, that relationship between you know, themselves and, and their audience, that's direct. And so there's no third party that can come along and say, sorry, uh, you violated a terms of service or we're going to just arbitrarily kick you off the platform. And by the way, you, you lose access to the, the kind of like bi-directional relationship 
that you had you had kind of established on, on that platform. Two most prominent examples, uh, if you spend a long time on Twitter building up an audience or you spend a long time up uh, on something like YouTube building an audience, they can just turn you off at any point. There's no ability to export your your followers before you leave and say, hey, you know, follow me here. You know, co- contrast that to something like Substack, where if I am using Substack and I switch to using an alternative uh, email newsletter, I, I'm able to move my subscriber list. That that's that's a norm within the email network, which happens to be a Web one decentralized permissionless uh, net, network or you know protocol. And mm-hmm. and so that's the first thing that we're optimizing for with with uh, you know something like Farcaster. The second thing, and this is important because I think to make a protocol successful, you actually have to have many apps and services built on top of it. If it's just kind of like an open API for a company. That can change, right? Like you can have a new regime show up and Twitter in the early days was actually a very open API ecosystem. And as of recently, they, they've effectively shut that entire third-party ecosystem, at least from the client standpoint, down. Mm-hmm. And that's a regime change, right? So you go from one group and, and there was the pre-public Twitter versus the post-public Twitter versus the Elon-owned Twitter. And, and so that can change pretty quickly. Um, Facebook, another good example, Zanga had built on top of Facebook in the early days. They changed the way they were doing things or their strategy that disproportionately hurt Zanga. So the idea of platform risk is real. And what we're trying to do with, with a network like Farcaster is allow developers to have direct access to the data and APIs at the network level. And any relationship they have with the user is, a again, a direct relationship between the developer and the user, which is very common, obviously, in, on the web or in email. Uh, desktop software is pretty similar in the sense that, you know, if you download my my browser, Apple probably isn't going to uninstall it from the machine, right? Mm-hmm. They probably would like to at this point, given that how successful they've been with the iOS app store and, and, and the kind of wall garden approach there. But I think a lot of what happens in technology is if the norms are strong enough early on, they're very hard to, to change later. Um, whereas mobile, the, the modern era of mobile effectively is, is never been an open ecosystem. So therefore things tend to be a little bit restricted. So with Farcaster, we were trying to make essentially an unruggable, uh, you can't have, have someone pull out the rug from under you as a developer. Uh, and, and that's at the, the kind of protocol level. So direct relationship between a, you know, publisher, creator and their audience and direct relationship data APIs and users for developers. And then as it relates to how there are different implementations of decentralized social networks, so you have, um, I'd say, two buckets. So you have the ones that that use blockchains, and then you have the ones that that don't use blockchains. And, and the ones that don't use blockchains are actually larger in terms of total number of monthly active users, and, and they're a little bit older, Mastodon being the most prominent. But you have Blue Sky, which is working on on uh, kind of another approach, which is which is federated. Uh, Nostr actually doesn't use a blockchain. It, it uses um, just public-private keys. Uh, it, it, it's like Bitcoin-friendly, and, and I would call it Bitcoin-adjacent. Like you can do Lightning payments in the apps, mm-hmm. but from a fundamental what where the identity lives, that that is actually just a uh, attestation, and, and that's actually one of the things that I would say we're trying to solve for with Farcaster is in the federated type systems. Identity is actually a very tricky thing, at least from a user experience standpoint, right? Yeah, we use email today, which actually uses the domain name system. But I think a lot of the challenges of email, right, phishing and all of the stuff that I think if you're not as sophisticated of a user, you kind of sometimes get confused about email. 
that's because the, the system email was designed for really technical users because it was an academic system originally that just, you know, took off. Contrast that to something like Twitter or Instagram, uh, where you have just a simple at username, right? Uh, you can be at Humpty, I can be at DWR, and and that there's only one, right? And so that that is a an optimization that can happen when you start to actually put the identity layer rather than it being federated, okay? And every server design designs which you know identity you have. It moves to kind of a blockchain based model where now the the kind of identity is is stored on chain, and then there are varying degrees of what else is stored on chain. So in a case of Farcaster, the only thing we do on chain is the identity mapping because we think that that's actually the critical thing to to take out of the hands of any one individual company, organization, country, right? Shouldn't live on a server. It should should live kind of in this kind of credibly neutral common ground, um, which Ethereum can provide. And then for the rest of the stuff that we do with Farcaster, it's actually all off chain. So we we our view is if you do stuff on chain, even if you're doing it on a cheaper chain, uh, gas costs are going to increase over time because by definition, as the chain gets more popular, um, they, they, bandwidth can't increase infinitely. It just, this is like, there's a gravity to it in the sense that at some point you're going to hit the max amount of block space. And so you either less uh, decentralization on that chain, which that has a set of trade-offs or you increase gas costs. And so our, our view is to use social media outside of maybe the sign up, which is what we're, we're betting on. Uh, it should be completely free. It should just be like normal web two, and mm-hmm. so that's what our architecture does. I think some alternative blockchain based uh, decentralized social networks or protocols they tend to put more stuff on chain, and our, our view is it doesn't actually solve anything by putting uh, more stuff on chain. Yes, you might get a little bit of composability for you know if if a for example a follow or a like is an NFT, then you can in theory sell it. But our, our bet is that most of those things don't actually matter mm-hmm. from a composability standpoint. And what, what you really care about with a decentralized social network is if you go back to what people use centralized social networks for, the, at least the public ones, right? Like put, put, put Facebook in a messaging app to the side because it's a slightly different use case. But for the big public, I have a profile, anyone could follow me networks, it's about distribution, right? I'm mm-hmm. assuming you have uh, profiles on all these public networks. And then when you put out a podcast, you put a link to the podcast on all of them with the hopes of reaching the widest audience possible. And so our, our point of view is that is the problem to just like hone in and on and solve and sufficiently decentralize the network to the point where if the only thing that's on chain is the identity, and then you can actually have every piece of, of kind of content on Farcaster tie back to that identity on chain through a cryptographic signature is what we do, then you can actually get the best of both worlds in that you can get the kind of usability the speed, you know, user experience, all of that great stuff from Web2. And that's important because you're trying to get as many people to use it because then that actually directs people who want to publish, right? That the, the audience. And then you also have the the strong ownership guarantees of Web3, right? No company, country, individual can come in and muck around with. Yeah, it sounds like, at least from what I'm taking away from what you've, what you've said pretty eloquently here is you're solving for distribution while still trying to, or while also trying to provide the user with a level of self-sovereignty and portability, right? And interoperability with their identity. Um, I think that's that's pretty excellent. I, I like this idea too of considering efficiency in terms of how you're building out the platform. Uh, because 
I don't think yet that we've seen a blockchain that claims to be uh, faster and cheaper when they do become popular, actually maintain uh, that promise, right? Because as a blockchain becomes uh, busier, then obviously the uh, you know transaction speeds might uh, diminish a bit, and the costs definitely go up. So that's an interesting way of, of of thinking about it. And so this idea of decentralized enough, which I definitely hear and read a lot about when I think about Farcaster, I think uh, resonates at least with me with what you what you've just said. One thing that I I kind of want to explore because you brought up identity, and I kind of want to touch on this because. It seems like also you're exploring how identity um, is uh, it works on Farcaster. You have two different identity systems, right? And so you have one identity system that's persistent and one that's that is changing, correct? Or changeable, mm-hmm. not changing, but changeable. Yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit about some of the challenges that you've seen in other identity systems uh, where they're not changeable where you get, you get access to that uh, like at Humpty over on Twitter, for instance, and then I don't use it for years and then it just stays there unused. Or if I have my ENS, for instance, uh, at Humpty, for instance, and I, you know, and someone else needs it, but I, I'm just sitting on it because I'm specula- speculating on it. Are those some of the things that you're considering or is it something else? Our approach to how to make Farcaster work first starts with the product experience. And one of the important things here is we built the initial client So none of this is abstract, like everything is rooted in how people use the app and the user experience and what's confusing for people, et cetera. Um, Our point of view is that in 2023, we live in a world where Twitter exists, Instagram exists, usernames are a superior user experience than the equivalent of an email address. Um, And I actually think that they're a superior user experience to something like a phone number. Because if you actually look at the history of identity systems on the internet, you, you start with, with kind of servers, websites, move to kind of email once you have these platforms that I can log in, use email as the identifier to, to kind of be like almost like the public and private key. But then the username actually lives within the system, right? My username on Twitter, my username on Instagram, um, and, and most websites implement some version of a username. There is no concept of, uh, I think, a popular consumer app where you have a global username modulo email, right? And and we can put that to the side. I think the next iteration that happened is instead of using email as the identifier, most mobile apps at scale used phone number, right? WhatsApp being a prominent example, but um, it's it's just a superior user experience for most people. You know, instead of having to muck around in their email, which might be hard to find, you can just get the text message. Apple has that really nice thing, same with Google, where they pre-populate the code and it just kind of works. And so phone numbers are actually more popular than email addresses from a daily active user standpoint. If you think about most people globally, email is actually more of a, a web one or developed, you know, you, you probably have a computer, not just a mobile phone. Um, so, so I think that is the, the progression. And so from our standpoint is we are not going to regress from the username approach. And so what we can do is we can swap out the Ethereum address being the kind of like public and private key, the, the authentication mechanism. Mm-hmm. But the the actual user experience, how a user uses the app, the identity should should be kind of a simple human readable name, uh, should be no more than 16 characters. I think Twitter actually nailed that. I think generally longer names get really confusing for people. I think Latin alphabet, for better or for worse, uh, it, it's a constrained set of characters 
right? So if you actually let any Unicode character be used, there's uh, something called the homoglyph attack, where there's a whole bunch of different um, subtle changes in, in the whole Unicode spec, like all the potential characters you can put on a computer, that for the human eye, it looks like an E. And you've probably seen this. Sometimes there's like weird formatting in a tweet. It's actually because Twitter's, I think, supports Unicode. So what people are doing, it's not like Twitter has like a little, like you can format and bold things. Um, it's actually people writing Unicode and then putting it into the, the tweet, um, which if you were to like search for that, most search engines are doing a character match. And so it actually like that isn't the same character to the computer, but to the human eye, it looks the same. And so you actually run into these issues where I could be DWR, but if I give the few, the full Unicode set, you could be using a D that has like a little subtle pixel to the bottom that, you know, in some language actually makes sense. But for the average user, now they think this is DWR and it's actually a scammer. And so I actually do think Twitter and Instagram, like they've figured that out in the sense that like make the global namespace somewhat constrained and it actually increases trust. And then I think that the last thing on the identity side of things is, is what you mentioned. Um, there's a concept of a fixed identifier on Farcaster. We call it an FID, the Farcaster ID, just the incrementing number of user you are. So if you're the 623rd user on Farcaster, that's your FID. And the, the smart contract just increments one at a time. You can't like get your own or you, the whole point is not to switch. It's supposed to be abstracted away from the user. But it's important because if you actually think about how a system like Twitter or Instagram works, you're not represented by your username internally. You're represented by the database ID number and when you signed up. Because in both cases, you are able to change your username which is actually a very friendly user thing, right? So you start off, maybe you have a less great username, get really popular, you know, you're using this as a creator to do your business. And maybe people think that it doesn't matter, but people actually get emotionally tied to these names. So if you can go from like, uh, imagine if it was like Humpty 1237, and then eventually you got to Humpty, you, you want that ability to change the name. If everything is mapped to a username, so if you were to use an ENS as a name on a social network, um, in a user-controlled decentralized social network, you can't force someone to follow a, a different username. So you actually would never upgrade your username. So it, it's, it's a less desirable user experience. And so by separating the Farcaster ID, which is permanent, mm -hmm. and the username, you can retain your followers and all of the kind of stuff that you've done while being able to swap in potentially a new username and, and effectively as your identity changes over time, which there is a component to all of our identity that changes, you, you, you're able to do that. And so that's actually something that's like, uh, I think really important. Um, and if you actually think a lot of these systems, if you map to a username, by definition, if, if the system is user controlled, right? It's like there is no central authority that can just map everything again over from a following standpoint, you're, you're locked into a username. And so if you're on a server on Mastodon, right? Just like an email address and they kick you off and everyone's following that, you, you lose your audience. So it's actually, you know, like potentially even more capricious, capricious and arbitrary because at least Twitter, like if they, they deplatform a high profile person because it's so big, it's, it's going to attract some amount of attention. So there's this natural check and maybe you believe Elon doesn't want to get people off the platform. But if you're on some small 500 person Mastodon server, but you've built up a big audience and then the server admin kicks you off, you, you lose that audience. Mm -hmm. And so I think it goes all the way back to is that these public social networks are about allowing people with an audience to, to have more sovereignty over that audience. And the, and the way to do that is by creating more sovereignty around the identity, but most importantly, the pointer to say, hey, this is where to find me. 
on the internet, right? And the username, I think, is a pretty good version of that. But but email is a great example of this, just like for, you know, people say, oh, that's theoretical or whatever. But like the reality is if I have an email newsletter and I'm using Substack, I can point my, and I was using a custom domain. I can just change the MX record to a new mail server and overnight start mailing from that new service. And my users don't even know, yeah. right? And so that that's an important thing because now it allows exit for whether you're, you know, kind of an individual user who doesn't have a lot of audience and you just want to be able to move between clients. But more importantly, if you're, you have a big audience, you can actually use the software provider that is providing you with the best service, not the, the biggest audience, but then you, you're locked into whatever their terms of service. So before I move on, I want to say that if I could get at Humpty on Twitter, I would be very happy. So when I went to uh, Farcaster, I made sure uh, that I got at Humpty because that it does mean something to me. Uh, it's, uh, it's special to be able to identify as who I am on these platforms in the most efficient way possible. And so being able to do that on Farcaster was, uh, was a thrill. You said something just now that really struck a chord with me, and that is you're able to move to the, to, to the platform that's providing the best service. I think one of the things that Web3 enables is that because you're not tied you know, your identity, your data isn't tied to one platform. Pla- uh, you know, these platforms are now having to compete and actually deliver a better product. They're not necessarily um, having or, or, or kind of benefiting from locking in their users and saying, haha, you can't go anywhere. It's more the sense we have provided a client, a, a platform, a protocol with the best user experience. Uh, give this a try because this is where you're going to find your tribe. This is where you're going to be able to grow your audience. This is where you're going to be able to share your content in the best possible way. Tell me a little bit about like that as maybe, or if if, if it is, as a something that inspires uh, Farcaster as a team, as an organization, in terms of what it's building from the protocol and the client level. So I'm a big fan of permissionless innovation. That's the original thing that got me excited about Bitcoin and Coinbase. At the time, people were building some rudimentary but exciting, what I thought was exciting, apps on top of the Coinbase API. And just contrasting that to fintech, and and, and fintech APIs have improved over the last 10 years, right? Like Plot has made that a lot easier and things like that. But at the time, I was looking at that going, oh, wow, you can either deal with payments with all this kind of like legacy core stuff, or you can now have this internet native currency and you can kind of build micropayments, you can build uh, streaming payments, you can build, basically your your imagination is the limiting factor. And I think it's worth delineating that a lot of people are always like, well, all those ideas are terrible. Well, it, it, that that's irrelevant in my view, in the sense that what you're doing is you're allowing the aggregate creativity of the internet by making something permissionless and not having any friction to get started effectively. I, I think that that is an underrated thing because we've lived for the last 10 years in, in kind of an increasingly big tech environment. But prior, I think a lot of this interesting experimentation and, and, and all the experimentation that still happens on the web today is, is permissionless. And so it's like, if anyone says that, that that's not valuable, then okay, like I think they're being hypocritical, right? It's like ChatGPT did not have to get permission from Google to launch ChatGPT, right? Mm-hmm. They, they were able to do it as a website. They didn't even have to go do it as an app because we, we, we still have the open web. And, and so 
my point of view is we, we already have this big permissionless platform called the web, but there are a bunch of other kind of what I would call, what you want to call marketplaces or things that have supply, demand, liquidity that are siloed that have gotten big as a result of the internet, right? Because the internet gives you distribution, but th the innovation has slowed because it's one company monopolizing that, that specific pool of liquidity, right? Um, I think a good example of this is, is Airbnb. Airbnb, yes, you can go to VRBO or, or some of these other sites, but the, the reality is, is if you want to kind of rent a, a house that has you know, some nice aesthetic characteristics, Airbnb is going to have the best liquidity and supply there. But as a result of not having any client competition because they own that proprietary supply, Airbnb can do all these, these you know, user frustrating things where it's like, oh, well, we're going to show you a fee and then the cleaning fee and the taxes get added in later. Or like basically users have to complain and that's all they can do. Like, yeah, they could vote with their feet, but the reality is, is like uh, they, they're going to use the supply even despite the bad experience. But that said, if you could actually now say Airbnb, that marketplace, like that supply was a protocol, okay? Doesn't have to have a blockchain. Just 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 take the approach of that you have a common common standard that any one company can actually offer that same supply and then they're able to provide some level of the trust that Airbnb provides, right? So the, the reason Airbnb is successful is that, yeah, they got the supply, but more importantly, there's some baseline level of trust, right? Like if you if you have an accident that happens there as the homeowner, Airbnb is going to cover you. And then as the guests, they are. And, 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 and as they hit that scale, they can kind of create that convenience and trust. I think another example, and, and this is something that I learned in crypto in my you know, first five years in crypto, was at Coinbase. So you can go buy Bitcoin at a bunch of other places. Bitcoin, by definition, is a is a commodity, and um, it's it's completely fungible. And like a Bitcoin bought on Gemini, or Binance, or Square is the or Robinhood. It's the same Bitcoin that you would buy at Coinbase. There's no, nothing special about Coinbase. Coinbase is also more expensive, and so the fact that Coinbase still it continues to to grow in terms of the total number of users. And has a meaningful business and is much bigger than a lot of their competitors who, who are charging um, lower fees for the same thing goes to the fact that you are competing on a set of things that that people value beyond just the base level price commodity trade off. Right. We're not like these like perfect economic actors that only optimize on price. It's like people care about brand. They care about security. They compare about they can. Uh, sorry. They care about. UX. And I think Ben Thompson actually has a great blog, blog post on this called What Clayton Christensen Got Wrong. And so for those who don't know, Clayton Christensen wrote this book, The Innovator's Dilemma. And he talks about how in markets you have low-end disruption start kind of in an area that the, the like incumbents don't think is valuable because it's like low margin and it's and kind of like not worth their time. They want to spend time on high margin stuff. And then they work their way up the, the value chain and ultimately disrupt the, the incumbent because they've eaten the profit margin the whole way up or they've just been able to operate better. And so he made this prediction um, that Android was going to disrupt the iPhone, right? It's like iPhone finds luxury good, but like it's going to have low end disruption. And obviously that hasn't happened. And the reason is consumers are not the same as businesses. So in business, you actually have a lot more rational, like it's a lot more dollars and cents most of the time. 
Um, but with consumers, there's an aesthetic, there's emotion, there's, there's brand. It's like, why, why are you wearing the clothes that you're wearing? Is it because of the technical characteristics or it's, it's how it makes you feel or, or, or kind of how you want to be seen in the world? And so this is a long rant to go back to if we can get to a place where the, the kind of big systems that got built up during the Web 2 era um, can move towards being protocols. And again, I'm going to like be really clear. Mm-hmm. Blockchain is not like the the answer. It's just like the there's a tool that you can use if, if that's the right tool to use to get things to be protocols. And I actually think that the primary way that this is going to happen is you just have irrational people like Varun and myself. It's a, it's a kind of irrational to start working on a Twitter competitor when Twitter's at scale. Um, and we just say, hey, well, we want to build something that's a protocol and decentralized. And by the way, like we have, you know, 99%, 98% market share on Farcaster today, albeit very small user base. It's completely fine if we get down to 10 or 20% market share with our client, because assuming we continue to grow the protocol, because then the protocol is successful. Mm-hmm. And I think that cynical people will quickly show up and say, hey, like, well, what's to stop you, you know, go from 8,000 people on a beta today to 8 million. Why don't you just change it so that you're like, I'm sorry, just like Twitter, no more open API. And I would tell you, you should continue to be really skeptical and cynical, despite me saying all these things, mm-hmm. until Farcaster actually hits a bar that it is permissionless. And so that's actually what we're working on, right? And so we're working on this thing called Farcaster Hubs. And you can think of a hub as like what an Ethereum node is for the Ethereum network, a Farcaster Hub is for the Farcaster network. But when these are ready later this year, not designed for the average user to run, but more importantly, any developer can go to GitHub. They're going to be able to download a Farcaster hub, spin it up pretty quickly. It's going to sync with all the other hubs on the network, kind of like BitTorrent mm-hmm. uh, or Ethereum. And then you have full global access to the state of Farcaster, the data and APIs. And you as a marginal developer, a one-man shop or one-woman shop, you're, you can compete with the, the big company in the space. And then that, that is an equal playing field. And so until we, we get there, that's me all just promising and, and people should be skeptical. But, 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 but once that exists, you don't have to trust me. You can just, you can just test it out for yourself and say, does, mm-hmm. does this actually work? And so, so that, that, that's my general view of it is Web3, I think, gets way too wrapped up in, in crypto. I love crypto. I think crypto has a lot of really useful characteristics and, and properties. But I think that and, and the, the jargon wars is like it just makes people batty, especially on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But I think what Web3 means to me is you, you're the, the foundation of what you're building is a protocol. So you're going to compete on service quality, right? And then the ability to exit with interoperability, it's a little bit of a mouthful, but it's, it's important. So that if I am providing you with access to Farcaster right now, assuming we hit that, that kind of like Web3 protocol bar in my view, if you don't like how we're providing service, you don't like the algorithm we're doing, you don't like the UI, and someone has something better, you're a couple clicks away from switching over. And then there is no, there is no gimmick where we're locking you in and not letting you leave. It's like, nope, that's the ethos of this thing. And that's actually how the norms are set up. And going back to my original point about email, those initial norms can go a really long way. And if you've invested the time and energy into trying to make the protocol really healthy from the beginning, then it gets really difficult for a big, big company to come in and, and push everyone out and then close things down because mm-hmm. The, the cat's out of the bag at the beginning. So you said something that I think I, I'd like to get a little clarification on. So you were talking about Farcaster, Farcaster hubs 
and how these, we could see them as nodes on the Ethereum blockchain that hold a state of the network, right? Yep. On Ethereum, if there is not consensus with the way that the protocol is moving, they can basically come to a fork in the road, literally, and have two different versions of that protocol. It sounds like to me in the future, as long as there is an agreement that Farcaster is working in the best way possible for its community and for itself, it will continue to operate as Farcaster. However, it sounds like there could also be a chance where if there are disagreements between the Farcaster hubs, similar to these nodes, they could potentially fork. And as a user, you have the option of using one or the other, right? You have that optionality. So in terms of the interoperability on exit, which I think was a term you used, you have that both if there was a fork of the Farcaster protocol, but it sounds like also you could potentially have that same interoperability at exit from the Farcaster clients. If there was another client that would be built on the singular Farcaster protocol. So there's this kind of flexibility too, in terms of how the protocol works and how the client works and the different options that users like myself have when, you know, for, uh, to, to have the best user experience overall. Yeah. So I think that what's important um, is a so fork with Ethereum or fork with Bitcoin, the, the state of the network, it's, it's actually pretty critical because mm-hmm. um, if I have a Bitcoin on this chain and I have a Bitcoin in this chain, and if you're trying to get a Bitcoin from me, which chain do I trust? That actually, the, that double spend potential is the thing that actually drives consensus. And, and we've actually found is, you know, it was theoretical hard fork before the Bitcoin Cash one and then the Ethereum, Ethereum Classic one. Mm-hmm. But basically the other chain never dies. And so there's kind of like a weird split. And then and then the there generally so far has been consensus on one other. I think with Farcaster, it's slightly different in that one, there's no spend, right? It's just a post. And any one post, you know, is not the end of the world, probably, you know, maybe, maybe there are some rare exceptions, but the other thing is you can actually simultaneously be consuming from, from both chains. If, if that was to really happen, mm-hmm. um, because you don't have to worry about, is this authentic or not? It's, you just care about, is the signature mm-hmm. correctly mapped to that identity? Right. Mm-hmm. And so you can actually kind of just simplify Farcaster, the hubs, they have a consensus algorithm like a blockchain, but they don't actually have to solve for double spends. So thus you don't have you know, gas fees or things like that. And so we actually use something called the CRDT. It's technical. But but the idea is that what we're betting on, and I do think that this has worked for Bitcoin um, because, you know, they could in theory change the block size or whatever, but miners, you know, generally have a line with the core developers. And so the, despite, uh, you know, people wanting this to happen, you, you can actually drive to some level of, of social consensus, which actually drives how, how the blockchain works. Same, same thing with, with Farcaster is ultimately if you're using Farcaster, going back to this idea of what we're optimizing for is you want distribution. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to be less likely as a, as a especially a, a, a big publisher mm-hmm. with a large audience, you're not going to want to use a client that is not maximizing the distribution reach to the network. And so the, the game theory here that at least we believe this and we'll see how it plays out over the next few years is your incentive is to kind of always make sure as many people as possible get access to the content and then you, for your users, you want to get it as fast as possible to them. And so there's actually just a basic economic incentive if that you're providing us client in the ecosystem, you're going to kind of want to be 
following the the kind of like de facto the, the default implementation. And it's also important is that we've built the initial client and we're going to continue working on this client. And so the reference client, the, the initial one that exists is going to be following these practices. So you you even if you have someone come in and they grow really fast and then they start trying to hijack the network, there's always going to be hopefully a credible alternative as long as we're running this main client, you know, mm -hmm. 20 years from now, maybe that's not the case. But hopefully by then, if it's worked at, at that level, you're going to actually have such a big market that you're going to have many different clients. And if any one client starts to not follow the kind of the norms of that network, uh, people will switch. So thanks for that. And I think we, I'd like to go back to something you said earlier, and that's permissionless innovation. I, and I personally being someone that's uh, at least on a regular basis opening up my Farcaster app, I do see the number of different developers that are coming in to the platform and that are sharing the different things that they're building, um, you know, on Farcaster. Tell me a little bit about this idea of opening up the platform, the protocol to developers to be able to innovate and build, uh, you know, different things, uh, wh whether that is a Farcaster client or something else. I, I, I was going through your Twitter and I think you do a really amazing job at highlighting some of the different things that are getting built on the Farcaster ecosystem. I've met a couple uh, of uh, amazing people there that are building things like Disco, for instance, right? I think even you shared a tweet about like Farcaster hubs being a contribution or something from a, a, a different developer. What I think it's it's it sounds obvious why you would want to open up a system that way, but just maybe give me a little bit more context to someone who's developing a platform like Farcaster to have this open system where anybody can come in and contribute. So our initial beta launch now um, two years ago, or you know, year and a half ago, we we did not put any effort into the developer platform. So we we launched the V1 of the Farcaster beta, barely checking the box that you could run Farcaster without using our servers. It was it would require a lot of technical work. You would have to kind of like deal with a bunch of stuff. There were going to be breaking changes from our end, but it did work from day one from an architecture standpoint. Um, we've kept it in a private beta. Actually, one of the primary reasons is we just haven't hit a bar where you, you can actually hit that permissionless innovation where you don't have to ask anyone. You can just show up, download a hub, sign up on the blockchain you know, without asking anyone and then and then get going. Today, you have to ask me for an invite via DM. Uh, API keys are administered until the hubs are ready through us. So there's there's a little too much centralization for us to actually be in an intellectually honest way, pro publicly promoting um, Farcaster is like, get signed up, like you, it's, it's sovereign, right? Like it is very much a beta. That's why there are plenty of people who are interested in using it. So we you know appreciate everyone who has thus far. But what happened was, for the first nine months, no one built anything on on the, the permissionless APIs. And there was no documentation really or whatever. But then what happened is as we continued to grow the number of people using Farcaster, and remember, we built the initial client, so we were kind of able to onboard people and, and give them an app that they could be using, people started tinkering, tinkering around with things. So Greg Skrilov, um built something called Searchcaster. Shaki Sukar built something called Cast RSS, which turns any Farcaster feed into an RSS feed, which you can consume in a feed reader. And we, we you know, just started to get 
people playing around with things, which when you have people permissionlessly innovating and then sharing on Farcaster, and we try to do a job of sharing it to everyone else because it's relevant for people using it, it just starts to create some momentum where now other people are like, oh, interesting. This is this is something if I'm spending time on Farcaster, this is a way I can actually kind of do something fun, but also get some status on this network because this network is about like actually building on top of what's available. And so we've had a, a, a huge increase in the amount of developer activity over the last six six to nine months. And we think it is going to hopefully increase even more once hubs are out. So these are all people who are trusting everything that I'm saying, which I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative that they are, but I don't think that that is good enough to be a protocol. Like you need to hit some level of um, just don't, you know, trust the code, trust the ability for you to actually be completely sovereign without having to talk to anyone. Mm-hmm. And so where we are putting a lot of effort is to get hubs out. But then once hubs are out, I think we probably will shift towards maybe doing a little bit better job of of documenting how to build things on Farcaster, giving people ideas, open source libraries that make it easier to do that. But I think doing all that now would just kind of be like, okay, yeah, you're getting more developer activity, but you're getting developer activity before you've actually done the hard thing of like mm-hmm. showing that the system can actually work in a permissionless and decentralized way. That's good. Um, so as we start turning the corner here, uh, one of the, did we miss anything here? Is there anything we should talk about Farcaster? Anything about like what you're building now? Anything about like what you're really excited about in the next couple of weeks or a couple of months? Well, I've already talked about hubs. I think mm-hmm. the the one other thing that people bring up on decentralized social media, which I think is a reasonable point, is how do you do content moderation? And my answer to them is, who? how do we do content moderation on, on the email protocol today? And then the, the second question would be, how do you do content moderation on the web? Mm-hmm. So to go through each of those examples, on the email network, content moderation is done at the client level, right? So for those at home, client is kind of like the app that you use to access a protocol. Um, so if you're using Gmail as your Gmail, you know, email address provider, that's your your email client. Um, and what's interesting about email is you can actually use one service for the like cloud-based stuff. So you can use Gmail where like your email lives in the cloud, but you don't necessarily have to use the Gmail app. There's another thing called IMAP, which is a, another protocol that allows you to use maybe the uh, the default mail client on an iPhone and connect in, or Microsoft Outlook can connect into Gmail. So email is actually, you know, kind of like a lot of client choice. Um, but how, how do you prevent bad actors from sending you email is we have spam filters. And so spam filters aren't a globally administered. There isn't a room where people are deciding what, what is spam versus not. Um, it's, it's done at a client level. Yes, they probably share, you know, block lists and things like that between the big providers. But, but ultimately, Gmail's spam policy can be different than Microsoft's. That, that's a market-based decision. The web is a little different in that um, if you think about a browser, browser doesn't do any content moderation. I can go to basically any URL that's sent to me with the exception of if the SSL certificate is out of whack. Chrome or Safari gets pretty aggressive and says, don't go to this web page. But you can still actually a lot of times click the advance button and then still proceed. So web browsers actually have a lot more freedom in terms of like what you're able to access. And I think any reasonable person is not holding a web browser liable that if you end up on some website that whether it has hate speech or illegal content or whatever, the browser is not the issue here. It's, it's actually the server that, that's hosting that website. And so the, the way this all works on the internet or like, you know, the web is 
most people use Google to navigate the web, right, or, or a search engine. And search engine makes no guarantee that they're going to index your page. In fact, they can de-index you, and then there is no arbitration. You can't go to court. It's um, it's centralized in the sense that they can make those decisions based on what they think is the right user experience and, and following the rules in the country that they're in. But what's important is even though Google has, what, 90% market share, you know, they claim 60, but whatever. It, it's, it's a massive amount of market share in search. You can use Bing. You can use DuckDuckGo. Uh, maybe ChatGPT will have a search engine later this year. Like so, I, th- that market is 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 competitive in the sense that if Google got too crazy uh, moderating, like by taking too many websites out of its index, people would switch to something different, right? Mm. Um, so, so they have a natural check and balance on on what's in their index. And but the important thing though is if they de-index you, you basically get no distribution. Yeah, you can share a link to your email subscriber list. But if you, you know, you have something where, I don't know, you have a website on the COVID vaccine and you want to get that information out there, even if a whole bunch of people link to you all over the internet, and that normally would make you rank high on Google. If Google de-indexes, you just, you don't exist. And so you're not going to get the traffic there. And so um, that people think is reasonable. It's like, well, Google can do that. So same thing happens with Farcaster, just like spam or just like a Google search index clients um, are going to decide what their content moderation policies are. So in the case of our client, we're a U.S.-based company. We have regulations that we have to follow, Section 230, DMCA, um, so you know, IP-related stuff. But we also have the First Amendment. So the, there is actually a balance there. And so I think for us, we're going to follow the letter of the law in the U.S. We're going to be transparent about it. But, but what's key is maybe, maybe those rules don't apply to someone who lives in France or someone who lives in Nigeria. And if someone wants to use a client that's that's respecting the rules in that country or, or, or use the protocol, they're free to do that. And, and I think that works on Ethereum. It works on the web where you, you actually have the freedom of choice of, of what client and what set of rules you want to play by. Um, I think that Farcaster as a protocol will probably spend a lot more time being kind of focused on, you know, anti-spam, anti uh, anything that's like trying to harm the, the performance of the network. And the clients will do the work on, is this content legal? Should this content get boosted in an algorithm, et cetera? But that, mm-hmm. but that will be much similar to email or, or, or search engine than uh, what we traditionally think of social media, which I think the challenge with traditional social media and content moderation is your identity is bundled there with the posts, with the algorithm, with all of the distribution and engagement. And so you can't break apart pieces and, and say, okay, well, we're not going to host this content, but people c- can still interact with it. Um, and, and actually Mastodon has a similar thing, by the way, where you can, you can actually have other servers ban your server. Um, which is interesting because if you're using a far, uh, Mastodon client and you're connecting into your Mastodon server, you actually, even though the client might actually allow you to see content, it, you, your, your server where your identity is tied to might have a, uh, a set of rules that's different. So I actually don't think that that gives as much consumer choice. Um, and so I think I want to get to a place where the content is separated from the client and mm-hmm. you choose the client that works best for you. And the clients are also going to choose the level of risk tolerance that they want. And I, I actually fully expect most large clients in the Farcaster network We'll have as much content moderation, maybe even in cases more 
than traditional social networks because the important thing is that you're not censoring people. You're, what you're just saying is, hey, this is not behavior that we want in, in our client. Go somewhere else. And, and last point I'll give here is we lived with this at Coinbase. So Coinbase has something called a, a MAC, a mandatory account closure. You have to close an account because they're sus suspected of you know, doing something illegal or uh, fraudulent or you know, just don't want to be a customer anymore. By the way, banks have this as well. Mm -hmm. When we did a MAC for a customer that had 10 Bitcoin with us, we don't keep the Bitcoin. We say, okay, sorry, we're no longer wanting to do business with you. Please tell us where to sign the Bitcoin. That's it. And, and, and like that to me is a much more reasonable approach to saying, we don't, want, we don't want to do business with you. That's fine. But we're not censoring you. We're not disappearing you off the internet. We're not taking your audience away. That should be left to, in my opinion, the true legality of, you know, where the web's content is hosted. And, and if that person is actually doing things that are illegal, it's going to catch up with them at some point. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that, that that is a healthier ecosystem because then you don't have some one company and one team trying to decide what is truth or what is good or bad. It, it's, it's, no, it's, it's, we have our set of policies and you know, this is the way it works. We ask of all of our guests because we have a diverse uh, audience that's seeking to learn. And as we say, go from crypto curious to crypto native. So we always like to learn what is it that inspired you, that motivated you early on in your crypto career? Uh, was it a, something you read, someone, a blog on Twitter, for instance? What was that? I think the the initial inspiration for, the, for me working in tech is I, I kind of fell in love with blogs on the internet. And I just thought it was so cool that for not a lot of money and not a lot of effort, you could be online and start publishing. And if people found your stuff interesting, you could you could grow an audience, right? There's no gatekeeper effectively. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I've always kind of been really into that. I think um, Paul Graham's essays were pretty influential as well. I think about them a lot. I, I never did YC. My co-founder Varun actually had a company in YC prior to working at Coinbase. But I think it, as an entrepreneur, I, I kind of run through a lot of these these challenges on a regular basis. And yeah, I find myself going back to kind of these little truisms that Paul Graham has. Do, do things that don't scale. Uh, you know, find 100 users that love your product rather than, you know, 10,000 users or 100,000 users that like your product. And... Um, I think the the ethos of what PG has put online and 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 the kind of like what YC, especially in the early days, started for uh, st stood for of this idea that like no, there should be more people trying to build new things in the world, like ambitious new things. Mm -hmm. um, I think has been like something that I've been really into probably since I was in high school, and so that that that's kind of both in working at Coinbase, which was exciting. But then in starting Farcaster, I think I'm just generally inspired to, I don't know, put a dent in the universe and, and work on on something that I believe in the long run uh, kind of enables forward progress, right? Like civilizational progress. And that's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Dan Romero and Farcaster, you can follow them on Twitter at DWR and Farcaster underscore XYZ, respectively. And... Please don't forget to give us a like, subscribe, and a five-star review wherever you listen to this podcast. It really means a lot to us, and it helps this content get to more people like you. And if you want to catch more episodes like this one, go to our website, 
at cryptosapiens.xyz. Until next time, stay brainy.